and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. My name is Jen Cheney, Vulture TV columnist, and I'm joined by Matt Zoller-Seitz, the TV critic for New York Magazine. Hey, Matt. Hello, Jen. Gazelle Mommy is not with us this week, but we are going to be joined by David Mandel, who is the showrunner for Veep, the HBO political comedy series that is now in its sixth season. So we'll be right back in a moment with our conversation with David Mandel. If Hollywood is high school with money, Washington is high school with power. That's one of the many uncomfortable takeaways from Veep, the HBO comedy starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Selena Meyer, the first woman vice president of the United States, who becomes the first woman president and then transitions in season six to being the first woman ex-president without ever once really quite getting a handle on what, if anything, she believes in, besides not failing and making sure that if things don't go her way, someone else gets blamed. The character is the anchor in a maelstrom of pettiness and narcissism, overseen hilariously by writer-producer Armando Iannucci, and now by David Mandel, a veteran of Saturday Night Live and Curb Your Enthusiasm, who Jen and I are fortunate to have on the show today. Okay, so let's... Let's start with the obvious question. How on earth can you come up with material that is outrageous compared to what's going on right now every time you turn on the television or open up your phone? It's kind of crazy. It's sort of like when they made two volcano movies that year. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I feel like... Dante's Peak yeah, and Volcano. Exactly. And volcano. Or like, yeah, Or like exactly. they were, when they were, to like, uh, what was it, Deep Impact and Armageddon came yeah. out the same summer? It's, you know, uh, 30 Rock and uh, and uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Um, I sort of feel like we're doing one show and they're sort of on another network. Um, it's bizarre. I mean, this this is the easiest way I can look at it is... Last season, in our in what was season five, we did an episode, a couple episodes in, with the novelty idea that Selena was tweeting and accidentally tried to send a DM uh, yes. and tweeted. Yeah. And that was met by her entire staff running, screaming down the halls, my God, the president is tweeting. And then that, you know, the shock of the tweet and all of that kind of stuff. And that now seems... I don't know. It seems kind of like when you're watching a movie from the 80s and people are talking on giant cell phones <laughs> attached to like a suit. You know what I mean? Like With a like, huge antenna. Yeah, or like a, out of the a cranked record player. Like, yes. what is that quaint old show where the president tweets and people are upset? I, I, don't, I don't have a great answer. I, I, every morning I thank God that Selena is not in the White House. That we and are, yet she kind of is. Well, she is and she isn't. But I do think it does help on a weekly basis that we're, the optics are at least a little different. That if we had – and I've said this before in places – that if we had her in the Oval, if we had Mike doing you know, press announcements at, in, the, in, the, in the press room and, the, the, and it was just the same shots, I think you would start to go – Veep's pretty good, but that other show is a little funnier at what they're doing. <laughs> um, and so obviously with this right. sort of little bit of a different world, we are still doing politics, but we're doing it from sort of out of office, which I do think at least, you know, creates some distance, some, you know, that sort of tragedy plus time equals comedy. Well, the time in this case is sort of distance, I think, a little bit. And it helps. But uh, hmm. it's wild. It's like they're doing 100 episodes, you know. Uh, it's crazy. They're trying to make it a syndication. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do you think it would have been different if 
Selena were still out of office, but we were looking at a Hillary Clinton presidency because I feel like that would have invited comparisons of a different sort. Is that something you thought about? Well, I think we assumed it. I'm not sure we thought about it, but I guess we were assuming it. But I will say that a lot of the idea of of Selena losing and then ultimately the show transitioning into former president of the United States, so to speak, really came out of when I first sat down with Julia two years ago when Armando decided he didn't want want to he was going to be leaving the show. And I sat down and they were sort of telling me all about the tie and all these things. And so this was always sort of part of our master plan. And I guess hadn't really thought about who was going to be president, quite honestly. And as we got closer to this part of the plan, yeah, we were assuming it was Hillary. And quite honestly, I think it would have been fine. I think, you know, it would have been a very, dare I say, boring administration. I think it would have just been very workmanlike and boring and people would have been going, wow, you know, this is so much funnier. And, you know, now we would be the funnier ones. Um, And, yeah, I think obviously there'd be the comparisons because obviously you'd have a very powerful woman in the White House that I think would have been very, for my money, very competent other than, you know, which would have been a very direct different comparison to Selena. And I think once again, it also would have helped to be out of the White House in that case because I don't think you would have wanted – Two women in the White House with people constantly going, are you just doing the Hillary show? And that Mm. would have been bad in a very different way. So I think it worked out for the best, but it is it's crazy. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I was I got to say that my my attitude towards uh, towards the show has changed a lot since the Trump administration. I can't still can't believe those two words are together. But I feel like I understand her. In a different way, like I feel like there's a new frame around her, and and it used to be that one of the things I had to just decide to accept was this idea that somebody who could be a heartbeat away from the presidency or in the presidency could basically have no real opinions on anything to speak of, and and kind of just be making it up as she goes along and be mainly thinking about her comfort, her appetites, her impulses, and things. But that's what I mean when I say she she does seem kind of Trump like now. Like I didn't have that point of comparison right. then, you know. But. Well, it's interesting, you know, because early on with the rise of Trump that we we sort of, you know, gave lip service to this idea that that sort of in some ways Jonah was a little bit of our Trump character, you know, as he was running for Congress. And by the way, we hadn't sort of, again, nothing, none of that was planned. The idea of him running for Congress seemed like a, you know, just what I know of the House of Representatives seemed like a natural, uh, natural move for him. Um, but, we you know, we talked, you know, people would ask questions and we kind of go, well, he's kind of Trump. And then as the Trump thing became more real and became more serious, I I did start to realize that, you know, in some ways we'd been doing sort of Selena as Trump since the very beginning in certain ways. But the real truth and I, you know, uh, to sort of equal opportunity, dump a little bit on both candidates. um, I've been uh, horribly sort of it feels like I'm picking at a scab, but I've been reading that uh, shattered book about the uh, the Hillary campaign. And. I guess one of the things that jumps out at you in that book um, is her inability, Hillary's inability to sort of explain why she actually wanted to be president and what her vision for the country was. She had policies, but sort of no vision. Mm. And there are moments of that where you also see Selena there, too. You know what I mean? Just the sort of like and, and maybe it just speaks to modern day politicians where we're, we're sort of we're all searching for Jed Bartlett, but we kind of get Selena Meyer and Donald Trump. So, <laughs> I don't know, something in there. Yeah. 
or I the guy from ask... 24. Where I'm searching for the guy from 24 too, President Palmer. But yeah. well, yeah, and yeah. in fact, it's it's now that they've got <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland playing the president on TV. Well, you get that sense on that show, and yeah. I watch it all the time. But it's like they're just like they've made him the president, and he's kind of professorial with glasses and right. very sort of milk toasty, and kind of you just kind of get that sense that they just kind of want to put a gun in his hand and have him, you know, <laughs> just hunting down the people that blew up the Congress. I like, know. Yeah, it's like I, I know. know it's not the show, but it is. Yeah. But it's like something. It's like Jack Bauer would take yes, care exactly. of this. Exactly. You just sort of want him to kind of kefir it up a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah I, I keep thinking like my, the, you know, a lot of shows that are set in the White House have. Bl- have credibility problems, but this one has a unique one, which is I don't believe Keith Sutherland is somebody who doesn't know how to pull a guy's heart out of his chest. Yeah, no, exactly. With it's his like, bare hands. Why isn't he chopping someone's head off week <laughs> to week? But anyway, I still watch. Yeah, you're you're sort of waiting for him to Hulk out in like the Jack Bauer sense. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Full on off. Bauer. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, David. I read this Washington Post magazine story um, that came out a few weeks ago, talking about how. You guys were finding out the election results, the actual election results, while you were shooting the third episode of the season about the election yes, in Georgia. The, the, yes, what, the Georgia monitoring election episode. And actually, those scenes, literally, we were finding it out as she was in the uh, the voting booth area and people were voting and, you know, dipping mm-hmm. their finger. And it was, sorry, depressing, but go on. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was just curious to talk more about that because obviously that's just – quite the juxtaposition, coincidental situation to be in, to be processing that while you're shooting something like that. There's something about Veep that's very, I don't know, Wiccan-like or something, where stuff we do happens and there's constantly these weird coincidences of like, even by the way, when we wrote that Georgia episode, and obviously the Republic of Georgia is not part of Russia, but is very Russian, and all the stuff with the bribery and all of that kind of stuff, you know, again, this was all you know, a year ago, pre-Putin, Russia, whatever, and all that stuff kind of came back. And then we did stuff with Daylight Savings, and that was a big deal this year. And then we've got some stuff with the debt ceiling coming up, and that's a, a hole to do. And next week, we have Selena uh, in the Middle East, in, sort of in the Middle East, in, in, in Qatar, and Trump's going to the Middle East. So these these weird sort of sort of things are constantly these coincidences. And that election night was sort of par for the course. It was just really strange. And it was doubly strange because we have a very loud, fun set. And it was just silent, just eerily silent. You know, people were doing their work, which I don't know how I did my job, but I can't even imagine how Julia did her job to have to sort of put on the sort of Selena face and be funny. Merman's leading by more votes than there are people in the country. Yeah, maybe he's busting them in from Chicago. Oh, this is not going to stand. This election's going down like Eleanor Roosevelt at Dinosaur Weekend. Hey, ma'am, your but, phone is ringing right there. Well, do I work for you? Just answer it. Okay. Right? Look, you call Nikolai now. You tell him to start spackling his face for his inauguration speeches. Gary, just get it. I will. Okay? Yeah, Gary, get... <gasps> what the fuck is that? Please hold Mike voted too. Mike voted too. What? I can't believe Stop. You two ding dongs look like you fingered the Incredible Hulk. It's Merman. It's Merman. God. <clears throat> Hello, Merman. Madam President, I trust you're watching the returns. Yes, yes, yes. Listen, Merman. Um, as fond as I am of you personally. I really cannot accept your generous donation to my library. I still don't know how she did it. The other thing that was really weird was we had no television. So we were getting all of our information 
on the internet, basically, which is a very different thing. With TV, you get a lot of that chatter in between stuff. On the, the internet, it's just vicious because it's just, it's just her percentages. It was just like 70%, 50%, you know, 51%, likelihood 49%. Of, likelihood yeah. of winning. Exactly. Yeah. She just, it, it, you just get these, these, all of a sudden there's just an announcement like she lost this state, she lost this state. It's very brutal in a weird way, as opposed to the, 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 the chitter chat, as I said, of TV. And it right. was just, it was just, it was hard. There's always somebody who's looking for that silver lining in the cloud when yeah, you're watching or, TV. You it's know, like, the, yeah. well, if she wins yeah. this particular precinct right, those in weird Pennsylvania, path, yeah, those that, pathways you know, and stuff, and right, right. weird little side She could still pull this out if this really just, obscure, unlikely thing occurs. None of that. Right. And then that <laughs> way, you, of course, because then you keep watching for hours right. until that, no, maybe of course, that of course. happens, right? And this, this just felt like it was over in a flash, which just made it all the more weird. And, and, and it was that thing where you're sitting there trying to get this scene done. And at the same time, I have to admit, there was just that 24 hours of like, is this a show anymore? You know, I mean, just in the mm -hmm. sense of what are we doing and what is America? I mean, I'll be very honest, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like how did this happen? And I understand 50% of the people some voted for him, but uh, it just, uh, or whatever, the 48%. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it was like 48 but, and 47 at, but it did just, at the end. But it did something. make you wonder just sort of like, you know, what are we doing? What is, what are, are people going to find this funny? Do people even want to stare at politics anymore? Cause like at that point, there was also sort of this weird sense of like, are people just sick of politics? You know, so it wasn't so much that I thought necessarily like they're not going to want to laugh at Veep, but just like, are they going to want to put a show on that has a white, you know, even though we weren't in the White House, has White Houses and, Congress and all these things like are people just done with it because it was such an ugly campaign and it had gotten just so horrible and and as <laughs> an, oddly as it turns out it, it doesn't seem to be an issue in some ways as we kind of kept going I, I, and again it's all sort of somewhat anecdotal but I felt like more more and more people were kind of coming up to us or t you know uh, tweeting us and all this kind of stuff almost saying please hurry back we want to laugh at something we want to we want politics to be a little bit funny or we want you to be able to make fun of you know I, you know and not that we do a Trump character but again the idea of making fun of politics so the very first uh, piece that I ever wrote about Veep was before the premiere and one of the criticisms that I had of it was although I thought it was a very funny show it bothered me that it reminded that it seemed so much like a shenanigans based uh sitcoms like you know it's not like there's a there's a very close uh relationship between a show like this and like Lucy and Ethel and the candy factory and the you know the conveyor belt is running too quickly and they have to start eating the candy i mean that's sort of what ha like that's farce that's what happens in a kind of a farcical uh structure but i have to say that uh now I realize how wrong I was. How wrong I was. I'm like, I feel like I should apologize to you for not understanding what you were doing here. I, I think you grasp a, a horrible truth. I think I was maybe too optimistic or something. You know, like I was thinking like, is you know, I know it's like, I know it's a comedy. I get that it's farce. I get that there's exaggerations. But would such a, like a venal unqualified bunch of nincompoops really be running the country. It's like, yes, apparently. Yeah, unfortunately. Apparently even, even so. worse ones. <laughs> I mean, even less confident ones. Right, because there's actually people on the show who are idealists. They just can't get anything done. Right. In some ways, the idealists are almost the least functional in some ways, you know, and in some ways the simplest and whatever. Like poor Richard, I think he's a genuine... Because they expect the yeah. best of people on right, some and level. And are constantly disappointed or surprised. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you know, to me, and look, I'm the first to say, and obviously Obviously, uh, 
you know, the show existed before I ever got there. And then, you know, I've been just trying to keep it going. Um, there's always an element to the show where you can reduce it to the sort of the screw up of the week. I mean, right. as you say, it is a there is, it's cla- it is a, it's a classic. Yes, it's, exactly. cla- it's like a sonnet. It has a classic structure. I do think when it can sort of diverge from that a little bit or show you other colors, it's interesting. I always am fascinated. I always love when you get to see Selena, not necessarily win-win, but when you see her fight, when you kind of realize who the street fighter she was that allowed her to rise up in her party. Like she didn't just end up uh, as running for president and then becoming the vice president when she failed by accident. You know what I mean? Yes. So there's a there's sort of in that backstory. And in these last few years, we've also delved a little bit into that backstory. But for me, just even when I was watching the show as a fan, what always fascinated to me, me was that it, unlike Lucy and Ethel, who just wanted to kind of get into Ricky's show, there was this idea of this is a show about power, who has it, who wants it, right. and that that's all you want, really. And that unfortunately, and I, I'm pro- I was probably just enough of a government major back in college that I read a few too many books where you just kind of go, oh, God, it's probably the most realistic show in terms of politics right. and the history of television. Yeah. 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 We, like, you know, as I said, we want the West Wing, but it's I don't think we get the West Wing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder is the is there. Um, do you have a theory about why it is that, as you were saying earlier, you will do something, you'll write something a year ago? You'll film something, say, six months ago, and then something happens right around the time that the episode finally airs. It's eerily. Yeah. Do you have any theories about why this is? Like any sort of grand philosophical? I mean, I you know, it, obviously it could just be a weird synchronicity, but I think about that book uh, from Calgary to Hitler. Yeah. You know, with this idea of pop culture as kind of the national subconscious, and it's almost like we're collectively dreaming I, things that then happen. I do think there's that idea that there's stuff in the air. And we're certainly, as we're researching, as we're talking to real politicians or people that have worked for politicians, we're we're having conversations and we're hearing stuff. And so if we're talking to people in D.C. and they're telling us about some interesting stuff, it's in the air. So, you know, I do think there's a, there is a part of that, which is – you know, we do we, we try and do our homework and and it's not so much a like we're doing this because this is going to happen in a year, but we're definitely constantly trying to take the pulse of what's going on in D.C., you know, what's going on, on a daily basis um, and, you know, sort of doing our version of it and sort of putting it out there. But, yeah, I think there's a reason that like, you know, when we like, for example, with the Georgia story. You know, I will tell you that the the writer of the episode, uh, Billy Kimball, had spent time living in the Soviet Union back in the day. He had been a uh, he had been brought over there to help them create American sitcoms. That was uh, mm. this is a million years ago. So he'd had some interesting experiences over there, and so it was one of those things where it was something we were thinking about. But as we were thinking about, like the idea of her going overseas. I don't know. We were just drawn to this idea of sort of Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, the idea of the money, the bribery and all these things. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I do think there is something to be said for that sort of it's in the air. And I do think it's also why, you know, every now and then you get that thing of like, uh, boy, those two – Sketches or those jokes were sort of similar. I'm you talking get, or you get about, like yeah. two Truman Capote movies. Yeah, coming exactly. Out at the same time and it's sort or... of like, well, how or why? And it does happen. It just, I, I, yeah. I just saw recently. I rewatched at Ebert Fest. They showed Being There. Okay, which came out in 1980, prior to the election of Ronald Reagan, and it was shot a, a year before, right. or a year and a half before that. 
And of course, it came out, and people were saying how eerie, right? How eerie that this, you know, this guy, his every gnomic utterance is thought to be proof of just some genius, deep yes, philosophical exactly. genius, and he's actually just repeating like whatever he knows about gardening. Yeah, you know. And there's other examples of that, like even just last year, that movie Hell or High Water. There were a number of think pieces that were written about how this anticipated uh, the surprise triumph of Trump, and uh, that was a movie that was that came out. In 2016, before Trump, yeah, you know, won the electoral never, college, yeah. and it was shot a year before that. So, you know, it's more, it's like what you're talking. It's like there's something. I feel like there's something roiling around out there. No, it's out there, and I think you are always looking for the next. You know, you don't necessarily know what you're you're looking for, but you're sort of looking for that next story. So, at least as a storyteller, and so you're you're, you're you know in the. In a perfect world, you're, as things come up, you're dismissing those because you, something similar has already been done. So you're going, no, no, no. Eh, that sounds like something I've seen or I can't put my finger on it, but I don't like that. And then somehow when you hit on the one that's new, again, it's sort of that thing of like, well, I can't prove this is going to happen in a year, but this is new. But other people are probably finding that new also. And then there you go. Right, yeah. right, right. In terms of the comedy on the show – what strikes me so much about it is is the sense of precision, just the way the dialogue is delivered, the blocking. It just feels like it's everybody's got to be in the right place, hitting the right note at the right time, which makes me wonder, is there any room for improvisation when you're when you're shooting these episodes? There's a tremendous room uh, for it. Um, I'll give you sort of a quick sense of our process, which is. We basically we we talk about stories during the summer. Writers go off. They outline those outlines become scripts. The scripts get read at a table. And then usually off of that table draft, we definitely know that there's things we want to work on, but we'll try and put some of the bigger scenes on their feet right then and there, usually maybe that same afternoon. In a perfect world, they take place on our sets so we can go over to our sets, but sometimes, oh my God, it's a hospital room or something. We just you know make do with an office or something like that. So we'd like to put them on their feet and sometimes just to try things, you know, just to play with them. So again, we're not filming anything, but we're definitely playing with them. And we definitely, we get new ideas for dialogue, new ideas for block. All these things sort of are happening there. Put them up um, on their feet with the actors. Yes, with the actors, the director, and, and the writers just basically sort of sitting around, throwing out little ideas here and there, and just kind of throwing stuff out. And most of the time, there's a pattern to it, which is just sort of, you know, tightening things up and sort of realizing, oh, there might be something in this area or something like that. And then there have been times where, for example, last year we were doing a scene of uh, what became Jonah doing a benefit or a benefit, a fundraiser at a bowling alley. And the idea was that he was the, the original idea was he was in a grocery store. We were planning on a grocery store and, uh, and actually Reed Scott, who wasn't even in the scene, really, he was sort of, sort of a bystander. He was in the scene, but was not in the, the, this key part actually came up with this completely other idea, which is that he's working with a, uh, sort of a specially abled person and then yells, ends up yelling at Patton Oswalt's character, Teddy, but that the cameras, on, to the camera, it looks like he's yelling at, at the poor person there. We begin with some shocking footage of congressional candidate Jonah Ryan, all captured on amateur video. We do have to warn you, though, Ryan's language is extremely graphic. People like you, you look like us, but there's a little piece missing. You're a different species. 
one that I hope gets struck from the earth. Fuck me, Amadeus. Can't even see the guy that Jonah's yelling at. God, Polly's not going to think that I was yelling at her, will she? Why don't we call her publicist and find out? Wait a second. Richard, tell me you have that from the other angle. Oh, and, and it was sort of like, oh, my God, get someone on the phone. We need to find we need to find a bowling alley and get rid of the, you know, so right. things like that happen in there. But for the most part, new ideas, new, you know, new blocking, whatever. And we go off and we kind of do a new version of the script. And then on the, you know, the day of shooting on any given scene, we kind of usually gather on the set, usually without the crew if we can at first, read the, read the scene out loud, sort of slowly start to block it and kind of get it moving, and then identify any problem areas. And while the team's lighting, and by the way, we, uh, our team, uh, our, our DP, David Miller, lights way too fast right now, but it barely gives me time. We try and I go off with the writers and we try and hit anything that doesn't seem to be working. At the same time, new jokes are kind of getting thrown in constantly. And then we kind of get it up on its feet. And it's, you know, and it is one of those things where it takes a little bit to warm up because of that level of precision. And, you know, and I do think out of the repetition comes sort of that moment where you can feel it kind of lock in. But within all of these sort of versions, the t- the reads, the various things, there's constant improv that's then going into the script. So it's not necessarily spur of the moment improv, but it's language and lines and new jokes are just, you know, sort of changing constantly and getting added. And then once it kind of kicks in and starts really working, which usually, you know, takes a couple of takes, but you, you there's that moment and it is... There's that movie, and I don't even think it's that great a movie, but I watch it a lot for no good reason. Of uh, it's Kevin Costner, where he's the Yank, he's the Detroit pitcher, and he's pitching it for Yankee the love of the Sam, game. For the love of the game, Sam Raimi. Yeah, and he talks about it's a the, good movie. It's it has its moments. Yeah. yeah, and he talks about the mechanism locking in and sort of like blanking the crowd out. There is that moment where I swear, just in my head, I I hear a click, even though. There's no, you know, there's no actual click, but there is that click moment where you just go, this is working. And then once it's working, not only can we go in and go, oh, you know that joke where you're saying this, try this, you know, or add this or add this or add that. Cause it's now it's just, it's like a, it's on rails. Yeah. It's just start. It just, mm-hmm. yeah. It's going downhill now in a really good way. I don't mean downhill bad. I mean it's like picking up speed. No resistance. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And then we will often just throw out two of our sort of you know, whatever mantras on the show or is like one is me- keep it messy, mess it up. Julia's always saying mess it up. I've learned to say it They we, on the show that we sometimes we call it zhuzhing, which is to have a conversation like we're having, which is it's not, hi, how are you? I'm fine. It's people talking over each other. And mm-hmm. there is a, sometimes a tendency and you'll see it in the early takes sometimes where I'll go out there and remind them, mess it up because they're saying their lines. And again, this this is part of the clicking. It clicks when people mm-hmm. start talking over each other. Don't worry if you say that line exactly the right way as long as you get the gist of it out there. So all of this is happening. And then we'll sometimes just shout out, okay, one for fun. And the actors will throw their own lines in. And then sometimes off of that, I'll yell stop and go, that line is great, but that requires a new rejoinder. So now we're writing to answer the ad lib. And so it's this organic process that does allow maybe not the improv on say the level of when I was working on curb where obviously the entire scene is sort of improved off the outline, but it's a real part of the process all through it. I, I hope that gives sort of a sense of it. I was going to yeah, ask you, cool. I, I was going to ask you about the, uh, about curb your enthusiasm yeah. and Veep. One thing I'm always curious about the relationship between, uh, 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 between improvisation and uh, pre-written material. Right. 
So you've given examples of where uh, an improvisation, when you're working through a scene, can alter the direction of the scene. And and I think in that one example you gave of an episode, you know, like relocating it from yes. the grocery store to the bowling but alley and having that incident, that changes what happens. But that's obviously right? happening in pre-production, not on the set. Right, exactly. Because I will tell you on Curb, which is a very different creature, and let me be very clear because I do think there is a tendency and I don't know uh, – I think people you and you don't see it as much now, but certainly in the the first few years of you know Curb, when I think the networks and the the different channels were inundated with sort of like it's Curb in the music biz, it's Curb here, it's Curb here, it's Curb that, that never quite understood that we have these very elaborate, thick outlines that I can only tell you as a writer. I could go home and write a script in a night based on our outlines, meaning. The the necessary the key dialogue right. is there the the big humorous ideas the following are all things in there. the yes, following exactly. things need to happen in this yes. scene so that we can get to the next scene without exactly. creating problems exactly. for ourselves and we leave right. and even when and sometimes dare I say even on curb we would sort of have the outline and then we um, you know not so much like Larry was always sort of in the scene but uh, it was uh, myself uh, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg we worked as partners for many years and Alec does Silicon Valley now mm -hmm. Jeff did the league and he's going to be back with Larry on curb we would have sort of our own sort of secret additional stuff that we already sort of had ready to go that we didn't necessarily want to hit the actors with quite yet to sort of see what they brought to the table but we always had stuff sort of not pre, pre not like not always jokes but just sort of ideas for like this is how the order should go and things like that that we didn't necessarily want to overdo at first and give it a chance to breathe but what i was going to say is so people i think always forget there's that outline but there were plenty of scenes on curb where you know it would be like you know someone would go do you want some water and larry would do you know eight takes of yes and whatever and then at some point you go out there and go Say no and see what happens. You know what I mean? Just to mm. shake it up. And that can sometimes cause – these are bad examples, but can cause – But I can actually see an entire scene, scene coming out yes, of him exactly. saying no to a yes, glass of water. all of a sudden it changes <laughs> because he's inspired by the no and then maybe that leads to a discussion of why are they always offering me – you know, whatever it is. Or what's wrong, Larry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that's a different example. I'm not quite sure we necessarily do that per se exactly on Veep, but there are definitely times – where, you know, we'll just pull, I mean, I hate to say we'll pull it apart a little bit sometimes also, like something's not working and it's not necessarily we're improving the scene, but we are, as we're putting it back together, it's, it's starts a little looser and we're kind of almost playing with it like the way we would play with a curb scene and people are throwing stuff in and then I'm sort of, you know, scribbling on the side, trying to kind of turn it back into a scene. So it, it, the possibility is there. Has there ever been an instance where an improvisation while working out a scene uh, resulted in not only the trajectory of that episode's plot changing, but the trajectory of the season changing? Where it's like, oh, now instead we'll do B instead of A right. because B is funnier. Yeah. And, now, and now, now we can't, in the finale, changes, we yeah. can't end up there because this changes everything. Um. I don't know if it, I can't say to you it happened sort of on the set per se, but the entire notion of sort of Dan sleeping with Amy's sister because he thought she worked for CBS and she worked for CVS. <laughs> right. That confusion was an actual real confusion in the writer's room where I, I, I can't remember, but someone was sort of pitching something and it was like CBS. Like, I didn't hear it correctly either. Like, a number of us, like, we were in a weird-shaped room, and I feel like those of us on this side of the room 
also misheard it. And so we were like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. We got to do that. Never heard back from you. Late night? Sophie told you? What? No. Gross. You didn't tell me she worked for CBS. Oh. Oh. This is too good. Dan, Sophie doesn't work for CBS. She works for CVS. You sold your dick for bulk iced tea and off-brand cough syrup. Don't worry. You're gonna look really cute in a blue vest. And then it was sort of like, once that happened, when we got to the end of the season, it was like, well, he's got to get a job offer from CBS. And then, of course, he's going to check to make sure that's not CVS. And, of course, now <laughs> cut to this season. And all of a sudden, he's actually working at CBS. And so it has sort of spawned this thing. But this season, for example, I will tell you, and it's been an interesting thing in his little world, which, by the way, has almost been like its own little mini show because he's doing mm-hmm. scenes with Margaret Collin as Jane McCabe. And then we've been just we keep adding right. little elements. Paul Shear is sort of the producer. And now, you know, we just keep adding these little elements to it. What's been really funny is when we first started, we were probably doing it a little bit straighter. It was a morning show and we were doing sort of uh, sort of morning soft news. But we sort of found this rhythm of of ending scenes or going into scenes with sort of these sort of very just fun kind of almost somewhat classic but yet new, um, like the idea of like, you know, you know, coming up next, could reading be bad for your child? One Texas <laughs> mother tells you why. And all of a sudden that, which wasn't 100 percent in the first episode of those news scenes started to sort of not take over the the show, but basically you'll see more and more of those as we go. And as we were sort of playing through the Jane character and the story, we started to realize, oh, if we're going to have Jane and she's going to be sort of, you know, horrible to Dan and all this kind of stuff – what? Why is she doing this? Well, she's worried about the young, sexy newsreader. You know, we need that character, right. which perhaps we didn't quite realize in episode one. So it's not necessarily improv, right. but it's definitely a story sort of like as we're sort of finding it and coming up with these things, it's definitely changed the direction. It's of kind of the like all, all about Steve. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you guys in the writer's room just have like a running list of insults and epithets? We that you keep, just draw from? We keep a master Jonah list because you always need <laughs> Jonah insults. Um, we, we, we really do. We keep a master list um, and we, you know, the writer assistants are responsible for like, you know, making sure we don't, you know, overuse. And what will also happen sometimes is in a scene where someone's being insulted, you know, the writers will throw out 10 new good ones and we'll make sure like we film four of them. We use one in the actual show, make sure those other three are somewhere else, or let's try those other three somewhere else so that we make sure they're used. So earlier in the season, this season, when he was bald, we had a lot of really good bald ones and they kind of, the ones that didn't make episode one kind of made episodes two and three until he had hair. So, you know, (laughs) we're constantly doing that. We do a lot of uh, variations on the F word. There's a list of those. There's another list of sort of, uh, you know, sort of like the Jesus Christ, sort of like those kinds right. of things. <laughs> um, and then oddly enough, you know, we were just talking about the, uh, the the CBS this morning. We've been keeping a list of funny news stories in case we need sort of throws, you know, so we, right, had, yes. we had those right. as well. So, yeah. How, how long is the journalist? Do you know? Well, we're con- – you know, the journalist, it's sort of uh, – 
it's it's constantly eating itself. So that's the problem. It's never that mm-hmm. long because we're constantly using them. I mean, if you think right. about any given episode, you know, he gets insulted. And then it's hard to explain with, you know, the, the Jonah insults. There is that funny thing of like, and, and this will happen with the writer's assistants too, where it'll be like, has anyone ever called him a 10-foot taint or anything of any kind of a taint? And then they'll have to, like, go through the old scripts and go, nope, no taint. And it's like, really? They never called him a taint? Okay, 10-foot taint. And so we're always, you know, like, shocked at what hasn't been used, but then trying to find new ones. Um, there was one just this week that wasn't even particularly foul, but uh, it was uh, uh, Ben, uh, Kevin Dunn, Called him a uh, I can't remember what the 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 attachment was, but it was something like blah blah blah. You something something uh, barbecue fork, and it was so <laughs> perfect. And it was like he's a barbecue fork. Um, and uh, and we joke, and Tim talks about this all the time too. It's that funny moment of where I get to kind of go out onto the set and kind of go. Sorry, Tim. Uh, Reed, can you now call him a Nosferatu on stilts, you know, or whatever it is? And it's it's so personal and horrible that like you sort of kind of sorry Tim but anyway uh, does Tim ever contribute ideas himself once in a a while once in a while but he definitely sort of just has to sit there and kind of take it that's really the honest (laughs) answer yeah are there are there particular people on the show uh, actors on the show that the writers write specific things for just because they enjoy watching them do it or well, I mean, say it. I think there's obviously certain, you know, obviously each character has a voice, you know. There are certain words that are just, that are great. Like, I, I, every now and then, it's not so much that I sit there and go, it's not so much like there's a list where you go, we got to get her to say that. But, like, there are certain words that, like, there there are Julia Louis-Dreyfus words. Like, I can't explain mm-hmm. it except to go, mm-hmm. oh, she, when she, that's a great Julia word. Like, she's going to sink her teeth into it. Right. Like, uh, even, like, in, in the first episode last year when she said something about the uh, the high school Spanish club and it was <laughs> the way she hit Spanish. Anyway, um, uh, you know, certain characters definitely bring out the writers. I think uh, when anytime Furlong is going to – Congressman Furlong is there, yeah. uh, I think people – rise to the occasion uh they really you know because it just there's no line he won't cross and it just gets more and more horrible he's kind of he's kind of the great white in the shark tank when it comes to abuse i think it's really it, it almost seems like some sort of old vaudeville thing because he really does come in and you know the second he walks in here comes his the abuse scene, and often he does one scene in a show. So it's sort of like Congressman Furlong, great to see you. Blah 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 blah. You, you know, you laugh hysterically. <laughs> then he makes poor uh, uh, Nelson Franklin, who plays Will, do something horrible, and he's gone. And it's sort of like Congressman Furlong, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's just like he came <laughs> yeah. in, he kills, he goes. Yeah, but uh, uh, the writers definitely take to him. What is the ratio of uh, scenes that you are able to get all the way through without cracking up versus scenes where people crack up? What's the crack up rate? It's a pretty high crack up rate. Uh, certain people more than others. I mean, Tony Julius scenes are are are, are tough. Um, uh, Tony cracks up, and then that makes Julia crack up. Um, sometimes you know it's like you'll see. I can't explain it, but if you were really looking, you see like. We're taking every frame we can of whatever Tony is doing because he's about to lose it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you can start to see like the curl of his mouth because he's about to start smiling. Yes. Um, and the way you edited it looks like he's just mildly in pain. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's, right, it's, it's, the, it's whoever's it's the doing that is a genius. It's the beginning of the laugh. Uh, 
Yeah. So that that's that's our worst kind of a thing, and especially big scenes with a lot of people, but him in it. That's uh, that's always something. This year we did a scene just in the last show that I didn't think we were going to make it through, which was uh, Richard has agreeing to be the sperm donor for Marjorie and Catherine, mm. and then them taking him to the the donor place and him explaining that he's never masturbated before. Wow, I can't believe I'm going to be a father. A lot of responsibility. You just signed away all responsibility. Never done this before. You just go in the room and build uh, uh, it. I've never shook the devil's hand. Oh. You mean masturbate? Oh, self-husband. Does it hurt? Oh, no, no Richard. It, no, but it how, how is that Wait, possible? Really? Well, my family and I are always pretty religious. Grandma Split always said that self-pleasure was a sin, like microwaves or laughter. Do you what? need a minute or? No, worse comes to worse, it burn in hell like Grandma Split. Really, he has a, a really good heart. I'm sorry, I'm still understanding how the cup comes into play. Oh, you 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 just have to aim, and and what? I don't know how many of these I need to fill up. Yeah, no, you, you just have to do one. Just one. Okay, yeah. I think that'll be easier. How will I know when I'm done? Now, you know, I'll figure it out. Uh, I'll probably figure it out. And the writers just could not get enough of that, and we just kept sending lines in to Sam about like, where does the cup come into play? <laughs> do I have to fill it? How many of these do I need to fill? I mean, just variations galore. And poor Sarah and Clea just had to take it, and they were just dying. And there was stuff that didn't even make it in, which is like him going in the room and saying, hey, there's movies in here. You two might like these movies. It just just kept going. Those poor girls just took it, and we're just sort of like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's like, it's okay. We're laughing back here, too. So, yeah. To go back to um, to – the Tony Hale and Julia Louis-Dreyfus scenes, which I feel like there have been so many good ones this season in particular. I love the fact that they both had heart attacks simultaneously. I thought that was (laughs) great. Um, But uh, early on, there's a, I think it's in episode two where she's at the presidential library and she's in the the exhibit for the Oval Office and he has to very quickly extract her. And it's, it's a, a, a physical bit. How many takes did you, did that require? Oh, where she's climbing over the railing. And And he just kind of picks her up and goes, we did a bunch, and actually, I don't know if you ever saw it, but Julia posted a uh, picture on like Instagram and Twitter of like the the sort of weird sort of hip bruise that she got on the sort of the pivot point of her like pelvis, where like I mean, a real black and blue where she was sort of doing the twist. Um, you know, that's one of those things where we definitely did a bunch because it it was sort of trying to get to that perfect sort of that 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 perfect sort of speed twist down, you know, where it could seem real, not too complicated. Earlier versions, there were almost like too many pieces to it. And it was sort of better when it was just vump, like over the rail and down. And then obviously the sort of like, hello to the guy walking in the room. So there's a little bit of that element of timing. But uh, there've been that's one of the really, and again, that's one of those things. Sometimes we think there might be something there that maybe the script indicates, but sometimes that's also the fun of the blocking of just finding those physical things because those two in particular are so wonderfully physical and people forget that. Mm-hmm. Who do you who who do you uh, look to as an inspiration in your in your writing of this show? Is there I mean is there is there someone who some program or some writer that looms really big in your mind or that is almost like your Obi-Wan? I, you know, I don't know if it's specifically about this program, but I mean, I was very lucky. I have sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, it's the, sort of the journey of my career. And I've been lucky enough to work with 
in my opinion, just you know, three of the funniest human beings on earth. Um, my first job was at Saturday Night Live, and I was brought into the show by Al Franken, now Senator Al Franken. And we wrote a lot of political stuff together. Actually, my technical first job was writing for Al on Indecision 92. I remember that. When Al <laughs> hosted the Democratic and Republican convention. So I come to the politics sort of honestly. I've always loved writing the political humor. And so Al was very much my mentor, brought me into SNL. And at SNL, uh, I got the chance to work under uh, Jim Downey, who – Legendary. Yeah, and with no offense to Al or anybody else, probably is the funniest human being on the face of the earth, and I don't say that lightly. That seems to be a consensus on pe uh, yeah. among people who work if with you've him worked, on the show. If you've worked with him, it's it's just – it's unreal, and I – you know, and wasn't he always known for kind of pushing things like just – you know, you would think like the goal is to push this one step over the line and he would push it at least two, you know? I mean it's sort of hard to explain. You know, it, it just – he worked – you know, some sometimes you, you look at things and you go, oh, that's a sketch by that person. That's a sketch by that person. And he worked in all types of sketch genres and different things. And then some of the political stuff, some of which he collaborated with Al, is just, you know, when I think back of what SNL means to me, some of it's that political stuff that those guys did, you know, before I ever worked there. It's sort of hard to explain what he brings to it. I, the easiest way I can explain is the following. There's a very famous sketch. I was not there at the show for this. This is before me. But there's a very famous Chris Farley sketch, Patrick Swayze show. Yes. Patrick Swayze right, right. and Chris Farley are – uh, auditioning to be Chippendales dancers. And there's all of the obvious jokes you think, which is obviously Swayze is glistening and like, you know, just glowing. Not an ounce of body fat. Yeah, exactly. Right. Just perfection. And Farley obviously is an overweight guy, but he could move. So he's moving really well, but obviously the flab is shaking and obviously that's the, that's the easy joke. And that's where I guess I would point out that most shows would stop. I guess what makes this sort of and – and I'm sure other people worked on it and I don't remember who were – everyone that worked on it. But I know Jim worked on it and the Jim part of it that I – the easiest part that I can explain is it's so clear that Patrick Swayze is going to be picked to be the Chippendales dancer. But in the Jim Downey world, it's the – First of all, the fact that it's such a contest. Right. And then that Kevin, that while they're all dancing, there's constant cutaways to the people sort of nodding and looking, even though Farley's sort of flying all over the place. And then when they finally decide to tell him, uh, we've got, we're going with Dallas, I think, or something is the name of the Patrick Swayze character. There is an honest to God four minute explanation by like Kevin Nealon explaining to Farley <laughs> that, uh, that Dallas Patrick Swayze is fitter, his body is better, his dance like it's just this incredibly long explanation of the obvious that is so Jim that I I just can't explain that that's Jim Downey in a in a nutshell if I had to put him in a nutshell um, and then obviously when I I got to Seinfeld which was sort of my next career stop I mean I still feel like. What I uh, very much how I learned to write sitcoms and tell a story really comes from Larry and, and Jerry certainly also uh, was a part of it, but especially because then I moved on to Curb with Larry. I mean, I just feel like he's really the one that taught me how to write sitcoms, and you know, those are the guys I think a lot about when I'm working. And there are times where I go, "Oh, that's a Jim joke, or that's an Al joke, or that's a Larry joke." What's a Larry thing. joke? What's a what's the essence of a Larry David I think, uh, plot or moment? Obviously, there's that level of uncomfortableness. It's the willingness to sort of be uncomfortable, and Julia certainly embraces that. Julia is – Larry 
and Julia are the two most fearless people I've ever met in terms of they're not afraid to look awful. And I, and not, and I don't mean just look awful like be ugly or something like that, but I mean to say that horrible thing. You know, I mean, you know, Selena is constantly walking that fine line of, you know, inappropriateness, racism, meanness to her daughter, all of these things without ever worrying about like, you know, like a 20 minute conversation of like, you know, this doesn't happen on Veep of like, oh, I don't like my character for saying that or anything like that. So that willingness to make the audience uncomfortable. And by the way, sometimes in those sort of Veep scenes where you know it's going to go wrong and you can kind of see it happening. Yeah. And then she just has to sit there and take it. You it's know, like a horror movie. Yeah. It seems like. Don't uh, go in there. It seems like. Uh, <laughs> and, and I've had friends. I have friends who can't watch Curb and can't watch Veep. It makes them uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? I know a lot of people yeah, who say and that Especially to me. when you can get to scenes like uh, in our first show last year, one that always sort of jumped out at me um, uh, was uh, in our first show where they had the, the, the conference on race. I can't remember what we called it, but right. basically and forgot to invite any minorities. I mean, <laughs> she's sort of stuck there vamping. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I will simply say we have one coming up. Yeah. yeah. Episode six has um, Selena uh, starting off at a funeral in uh, in Qatar and she reconnects with the uh, the Qatar ambassador who we saw last year, who was part of the whole Chinese Tibet thing. And they start up a little bit of a relationship as well. Wonderful actor plays him. Uh, Usman Ali plays Ambassador Jafar. And so they start off a bit of a relationship and she is trying to make a statement and ends up visiting a dissident and goes to make a speech, a very powerful speech at this Arab conference that's very pro-woman and anti-genital cutting and all of this stuff. And then at the last second, of course, is told that if she gives this speech, it will, it will ruin this deal that will a deal that they're trying to make with a Sudanese warlord, which will ha make the Chinese happy, which will get her recognition in Tibet. And she's forced to go up there and kind of put a sort of a vaguely happy <laughs> face on this horrible Sudanese warlord and genital mutilation as well. And it's horrific and it's fantastic. And it's, you know, and it's just and and you'll see and again i i'm not i'm not sure i'm doing a really great job but it was a very fun variation of something that i hadn't seen before which is you can see what she's supposed to be saying on the teleprompter so you know it's sort of like you know, women's rights are human rights. And of course she, and you know, and so it's like a lot of like, well, women's rights are, and her having to sort of vamp new, the new speech off of right, it. So right. whereas you've seen before the bad speech or the no speech, but this is the, the, the juxtaposition of what she, the powerful female empowerment speech she was going to give and what she ends up doing. Is it's almost enjoyable. like politics itself being yeah. distilled. But it is that kind of like, oh, God, yeah. look, look away. I'm looking at a car accident. Um, <laughs> so that that's very Larry. But it's it's also heartbreaking just as, as a woman to watch her. And seriously, right. okay, to watch her enough. change those words. Like, funny, but like, oh, God. That's... And and it is, you know, and, and sort of her role as a woman is something, again, you know, talk about fearless, that Julia's, she's not afraid to hate women as Selena, as Selena Meyer. I think it's one of the more interesting. Her language is shocking yeah. to me. I have a very high <laughs> threshold for, for, for inappropriate language and profanity and all kinds of stuff. But the, but the character who shocks me the most is her. Yeah. And it's often mm -hmm. like the way she talks about other women. It's been very – I'll tell you this. If we were writing a guy and he was just that misogynistic, I'd find it hateful and boring. But in a woman, it's fascinating and yeah. I cannot get enough of it just because <laughs> – 
It's just, it feels unique. I mean, I don't know what to say. It feels unique, and yet it's not unique. I have met women like that, and then you see mm-hmm. them in D.C. as well, where they really do dislike other women for playing the woman card or wanting that sort of some advantages as a woman or getting weepy or all of those things. And Selena just won't have it. She just will not have it. But it's one of the more fascinating aspects of her character. The relationship between uh, Selena and her family is among, in my opinion, some of the most uncomfortable material on a show that doesn't yeah. lack for cringeworthy moments, right? You, It almost seems to me like you play her family a little more realistically than you do other people in the show. Like their sensitivity to hurt and the way that, you know, the, and they haven't done anything to deserve that. You well, know? I mean, maybe her ex. I will but... say, her ex <laughs> yeah. definitely deserves it. Um, you know, one of the things, and it was always in the show, but I definitely think maybe we've amped it up a little bit in sort of my years as the showrunner is I, I just, I love the character of Catherine. I love the idea of this sort of, put upon daughter. But I will also say this. She's not completely innocent. Obviously, when Selena sort of gangs up on her, it's not a great thing. And it's sort of horrible. And as you say, there's sort of realism to it. But on the same token, she's not innocent. When you look at things like her sort of deciding to make a movie and make a documentary about the president, basically because she's the daughter of the president, right? there's a certain amount of privilege and horribleness there as well. That being said, I, I, I love that character. I love her relationship with Marjorie. It's one of my favorite things that we get to do. Um, and I, and I, and I guess I think it helps sort of in a weird way, sort of slightly humanize Selena, even though she's a monster, her being a monster to her family helps humanize her in some very weird way that she has a family. It makes yeah. me worry it makes me worry about my own choices as a parent, which is not something I would think <laughs> sure. would be on my mind when I'm watching Veep. Well, and that's one of the things, you know, we've really explored both last year and this year, which is who her parents were and why she's like she is and what will Catherine be like and all of these things. And I do think, you know, like I said, I, I don't I never feel like Catherine's quite as innocent as you sort of think she is. But the notion of the family sort of being forced to deal with her, I think, is a real part of D.C. I mean, I think when you see these candidates, you know, and I think history is, you know, rife with people that perhaps maybe should have run but didn't run because their families just didn't want them to. Uh, I think the, the the family side of things is a really interesting part of the sort of D.C. world. And, uh, you, you know, and maybe it's because it lacks that sort of sometimes it lacks the overwritten insults that they're almost just more cruel and simpler that there's sort of a little bit more realism to it as opposed to the more rococo sort of you're as horrible as a blank whereas sometimes she's just downright mean to Catherine in very simplistic ways like is that your hair yes yeah which is just sort of like that's just horrible in itself. And that moment when she asks her, she's essentially asking her family, yes. in theory, asking her family for permission to run again, but she's actually telling them she's, she's going to do it. And she them, expects yes. a yes. She it's, expects a full-throated endorsement. And the look on their faces, it's like they know what she's about to ask before she even asks yeah, it. They're, really, they're a little nervous. And it's a truly yeah. horrifying but, scene. But by the way, they believed her that they could say no in a weird way, too. Yeah, yeah. That's they what makes it so yes. awful. It's also a salute to one of my favorite scenes in, in movies that were sort of a kind of scene 
scene, which is a, like in Young Frankenstein, when he goes, I'm going in there with the monster. You're going to shut the door behind me. No matter what happens, do not open the door. Okay? And then he goes in, the door shuts, and then all of a sudden, Rrr, it's like, open the door! Yeah, it's like, open the door! And it's just that sort of right. like, okay, if anyone objects, I won't do it. We open object. It. Screw you! We're gonna, I'm doing it anyway. I don't care what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you, that was, that was, I mean, I'd rank that as one of the hardest scenes to do this year. Not in a bad way. I mean, mm. it was just, it was just one of those things that, uh, um, just finding that right balance and getting Catherine that upset and yet keeping it funny. Um, and she's a great ugly crier. Right? God bless Sarah Sutherland. But getting her to that place so that she could get that upset and then that can get Julia to where she needed to get to, which is indifferent to this real outpouring of emotion of, yeah. please don't do this and just not caring. It was, a, it was a journey. But God, I love that scene. Yeah. I know they haven't uh, announced yet whether there's going to be a season seven, although I assume that there there will be. Have you I started think to by, think? I think by the 23rd, you'll know officially there is a season seven. Yeah, I think, okay. that, I okay. think that's oh, fair good. to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Do there's going to be an, an upcoming announcement about both us and Silicon Valley being renewed at some point right. very soon. Okay. Yeah. But do you have a, a sense what the kind of narrative arc will be for that seventh season? A little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, not perhaps as much as these last – these two years have definitely been part of the original plan and now there's some new planning going on. And I definitely need a little – I'm still editing the final two episodes of the, of this uh-huh. season and I sort of need to – get done with Veep so I can think about Veep, if that makes sense. Um, right. I, I always like to kind of have an idea of what the first scene of the season will be and the last scene, and I definitely think I know what the last scene of next season will be, but I have yet to perfectly figure out what I where it starts, I think. And so there's, there's some work to be done, but uh, mm-hmm. I think you'll get a very good idea of where it's going as we get to the end of this season, at least like, like just sort of the area at least, so... I realize okay. that's very mysterious and pointless, but yeah. <laughs> when you when you when you look when you look back on Veep just as a as a whole, what do you think is the first image that's going to come into your mind? Can you think Can you think that far ahead? Like, what is the essence of Veep to you? If you had to distill it to one moment or one, um, it's you know it's funny. It probably goes back to that first episode because for me, you know, it was me new to the show and it was me writing the first episode and all of that stuff. And there's that moment of her sort of hunched over the desk at the Oval as like Gary's trying to take her mic off. And she's just complaining about the tie and, you know, there and talking about democracy and how the, you know, the, the Greeks, uh, you know, and, uh, Ben says that, you know, the Greeks invented democracy and anal sex. And she sort of, you know, try, she goes, I tried them both and they're overrated like jazz. Um, and I guess if you're going to put that, you know, it's like uh, I, that that's my in, in sort of that to me sort of summed it up when I kind of went, OK, this is my job now. <laughs> that's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at CheneyJ. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.